0: What an intriguing story is before us today. And uh, the title of the book uh, does not fully tell the story, Barbie and Ruth. Well, maybe when you hear the name Barbie, you do have some sense. We are going to be talking today about the Barbie doll and about the woman who helped create her. Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her. Robin Gerber has written a fascinating book here about Ruth Handler who uh, is uh, the woman largely responsible for that uh, iconic uh, doll called the Barbie doll. And uh, it's a story not only about that, about a a groundbreaking development in in the toy business, in the doll business, but also the story of a woman uh, at the top of a company uh, at a time when that was uh, exceedingly uncommon. It is also, unfortunately, a story that does not end very happily. It uh, is the story of Mattel and of some great difficulties which, uh, which they experience, uh, getting a little too big, maybe a little too quickly, or growing in ways that prove to be unwise, uh, a complicated story which Robin Gerber helps us to untangle. Her previous books include Leadership the Eleanor Roosevelt Way, Timeless Strategies from the First Lady of Courage, Catherine Graham, The Leadership Journey of an American idol Icon, and a novel called Eleanor vs. Ike. And um, she is uh, a lawyer and senior faculty for the Gallup organization, a senior fellow in the executive education at the Robert H. Smith School of Business, at the University of Maryland. And uh, I am very happy to be speaking with her about her fascinating book, Barbie and Ruth, published by HarperCollins. Robin Gerber, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Well,
1: thanks for having me.
0: I have to say, I got a couple of uh, long looks from people at, uh, at the health club as I uh, read this book on the treadmill, I mean, as they kind of spot the cover and uh, see that image of uh, the lower part of one leg of a Barbie doll, but my word, this is a fascinating story. How did you first become acquainted with the story of Ruth Handler, and at what point did it become apparent to you that this was a story worth telling in this kind of detail?
1: Well, I first learned about Ruth Handler from a book, actually, that uh, was put out called Enterprising Women, about other women business owners, and she was in this book, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. The Barbie doll was actually created by a woman. I had no idea. And then as I investigated, I discovered that she had also founded Mattel Toy Company, one of the great American companies. And then, of course, as I read more about her story, I learned that Besides building this great company and doing lots of innovative things as a business person, she then had this tragic fall from grace, uh, where she overextended the company, as you alluded to, and was convicted of fraud, and also uh, had breast cancer at the same time, so this terribly tragic period in her life. But then she redeems herself, comes back, founds a new company making prosthetic uh, inserts for women lost their breast to cancer, and really becomes a hero to breast cancer survivors. And uh, 10 years ago at Barbie's 40th anniversary celebration, Mattel had her sitting at the head table. So it's it's a great story of success and failure and coming back. Mm.
0: It's also the story of an intriguing partnership and marriage between she and her husband, Elliot. Talk for just a moment about what an intriguing pair they were and of how important he was in this story and in the story of the Barbie doll.
1: Yes, it's a wonderful love story. We're coming up to Valentine's Day, so it's appropriate to, to talk about that part of it. They met, uh, they were both children of immigrants, of Polish-Jewish immigrants in the living in Denver. They met when they were 16 years old, and they were together for over 65 years. Uh, Elliot was a wonderful designer and artist very creative person, but a very, very shy person. Ruth used to say he couldn't order his own food in a restaurant, but she believed in him every one of those years, and when he started making things, she said, I'm I'm going to sell these. It started with ashtrays and trinkets made out of a new, uh, new plastic material called Lucite, and of course then ended up with toys.
0: Hmm. I uh, want to read a, a, a description you give us of their partnership you say Ruth and Elliot's unique partnership established many of its patterns in those early days she had an optimistic view no matter the situation and kept Elliot's spirits up she had a boisterous adventurism that pulled him along and he had a quiet steady unwavering love for her and at the end of their work days there was much to talk share and dream about I mean I think many partnerships are, in a sense, unlikely in the way that this one was. I mean, kind of odd pairings, balancing of opposites, and so on. But it's really fascinating to be able to follow this partnership and to see how it worked for these two.
1: Yes, it was It was very complementary uh, in the way that they sort of filled in each other's gaps, I guess you could say. And, you know, certainly Ruth was a lot more volatil- volatile and, uh, quick to react, um, quick to get angry, and Elliot was always the calm one. He was the one, uh, you know, the very, very steady one. But as that, as that passage suggests, he was also the one who didn't, ha- didn't have that kind of absolute optimism, absolute confidence that I think you need if you're going to found a business and, and, and build a huge business like she did.
0: By the way, tell us about his name. I mean, what his name ultimately became?
1: Oh, that is an interesting story. He was, as a young man, he was called Izzy because uh, his name was Itzhak Itzhak Elliot Handler, and in the community where he grew up, they called him Izzy as a nickname. And when they were driving across the desert to, after they were married, to live in Los Angeles, Ruth turns to him and she says, "I'd like you to start calling yourself Elliot now that we're starting a new life." Because Izzy, frankly, sounds too Jewish, and she was concerned about an anti-Semitism. She'd experienced some anti-Semitism against her brother, who was nicknamed Muzzy, and some police officers. There had been an incident where they had made fun of him for that name in, in a very anti-Semitic way, and so I think she was worried about it, and um, it, you know, it made her uncomfortable going to this new place. She wasn't. I think they were, you know, as many children of immigrants. They were trying to fit in. And so she said, would you change your name and start calling yourself Elliot? I like it a lot better. Hmm. And he said, sure. Hmm. So he started to be called Elliot.
0: You say unconsciously they were moving away from their roots and edging closer to assimilation, heading toward a storybook realization of the American dream. They are in Los Angeles, I believe, as this business venture uh, first gets underway And I want you to tell our listeners the fascinating story uh, about the first order which was placed for some of their goods at at a moment in time, and they didn't even have letterhead or anything official to even write down an order. Uh, Tell our listeners that that great story.
1: Oh, yes. Well, Ruth went into a very high-end store, you know, a very fancy gift shop in Los Angeles, and just marches in with some of Elliot's designs. Now, at this point... He is making things out of loose sight that are really um, like ashtrays, bookends, just kind of, uh, you know, incidental sort of small items. And she takes these into the store and she says, you know, um, you ought to buy these. And the owner of the store says, well, I have to come and see your workshop. Well, their workshop was basically a a garage, a messy garage. So she says, well, come on Saturday because she wants to be there. And she had a day job at Paramount Studios. So uh, And she figures Elliot can't handle this, you know. So this man shows up, and he looks around. He says, fine, you know, I'll place an order. It was their first order. For them, it was rather large. Um, and Elliot realizes in a panic he doesn't even have a piece of paper. Hmm. <laughs> so he sort of grabs, tears off uh, the end of a bag or something and writes down this order. And as soon as this man leaves, they're jumping up and down and screaming because this is actually the first Order of what would eventually become Mattel Toy Company.
0: Tell us about that jump which they make from household items into the toy business.
1: Yeah. Well, what happens is uh, they're making these items, and Ruth actually gets pregnant and has to uh, stay home, so she can't be part of that company. Elliot gets a partner, and they form a company called Elzac, which is making these trinkets and women's jewelry, costume jewelry. And Ruth. Meanwhile, can't really stand staying home. So she's going to go back into business. And uh, she decides to sell, uh, again, some of Elliot's designs, which were picture frames. But he is also tinkering on the side with making dollhouse furniture out of these little pieces of scrap wood and uh, other materials. And sure enough, she finds she can sell the dollhouse furniture. So that was really the first kind of toy that they made. And Elliot just liked toys. When I interviewed him, he said, well, I'm really a kid at heart. I still love toys.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Robin Gerber, and we're talking about her book, Barbie and Ruth. So, one of the most interesting breakthroughs which occurs with this development of this thing which came to be known as the Barbie doll was an entirely new idea about what a doll should be and What kind of dolls girls would most enjoy playing with? This is one of the most basic things that I never knew until I read your book. Until the Barbie doll came along, uh, what kind of dolls did girls play with?
1: Yeah, if you were a little girl, as I was in the 1950s, uh, you could really, to to actually play with a three-dimensional doll, you would get a baby doll that's what you would get and so you would play it being mommy and that was it really wasn't much else you could play at when you had a baby doll but Ruth noticed that her daughter and her friends were often playing with uh, paper dolls because paper dolls of course were adult dolls and I remember also playing with paper dolls for that same reason that I wanted to play at being an adult and Ruth saw this and said well Little girls really want to play at being big girls. Let's give them a doll to do it with. But it took her quite a while, a number of years, to convince her designers that mothers would possibly buy a doll for their daughters that had breasts. They, The men just couldn't imagine such a thing happening. Hmm.
0: You know, it's really interesting to think about, as she observed this, her daughter and, and her friends playing with these flimsy paper dolls and mimicking adult conversation and, I mean taking on the role of, of grown-up women and obviously enjoying it, uh, you know she, she realizes if, if girls find themselves wanting to do that with something like a paper doll, imagine what they might do uh, if they had something more realistic in their hands. I mean realistic I suppose with quotes around it, but I mean uh, what if they had a, a real doll versus a paper doll? Uh, I mean, what what a, a, a brilliant insight that is.
1: Yeah, and I think, as I say in the book, I think it was, she always said, oh, I thought of this because I saw my daughter playing with paper dolls. But I think there was something deeper going on, which is that she was a little girl who always wanted to play, or who always wanted to be a bigger girl. And she didn't play at it because she was the 10th uh, child of her parents. And last child, her mother was ill, after she was born, and gave her to be raised by her oldest sister. Now, this sister never had other children and worked all the time with her husband, owned a store, owned a deli counter. And when she was 10 years old, Ruth said to her sister-slash-mother, I want to go to work. And at 10 years old, she was working behind the counter in this deli, and she describes not really having many friends, that she just loved to work and be around adults. So if you think about it, she was that little girl who wanted to be a big girl. So I think that was where the insight really came from.
0: Now, she has this idea that Mattel should make a new kind of doll, but uh, unfortunately she is unable to convince her own designers that it makes sense or that it can be done. Tell us about the discovery she makes during a a trip to Europe, which in a sense ends up, making all the difference in, 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 in making all this happen.
1: Yes, it did, because these male designers at, at, at Mattel did not want to make this doll. They gave her all kinds of excuses. You know, One excuse was that they couldn't mold such a doll with these tiny hands and feet with the current uh, kind of plastics that they had at the time in the molding processes, or that it would cost too much money to do it. Well, then she goes on a trip to Europe in uh, 1955 with her family, And in a toy shop window in Luzerne, Switzerland, sees a doll that you and I would think of as Barbie. But in fact, this doll started its life a few years before that as the uh, three-dimensional realization of a cartoon character and a very popular cartoon character named Lily in one of the German newspapers. And Lily in the cartoons is actually a prostitute. And the cartoonist who made this uh, cartoon had the idea that men would like a gag toy of Lily. And so this was Lily was born as a gag sex toy for men. Uh, but even in Europe, little girls saw this toy, doll and said, I want that. And so it had uh, gradually worked its way into toy shops, and that's when Ruth found the doll, brought it home. Her daughter wanted one. She got one for her daughter, two for herself went back to Mattel and handed it to her designer and said, figure out how to make this. This is the doll I've been talking about.
0: Well, and of course, when you hand over a doll uh, to somebody who says it can't be done, <laughs> that's all the proof uh, you need that, that in fact, it can be done. I mean, somebody is doing it, and we need to do it, too.
1: Exactly.
0: By the way, I, you do make mention at some point that that ultimately the the company responsible for the Lily doll goes after Mattel, I mean, believing, and to some extent probably quite rightly, that their idea and design had, in a sense, been stolen.
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, it was, wasn't it? And uh, they did. They brought a suit. They uh, they went through various uh, machinations. But at the end of the day, Mattel bought the uh, rights to
0: the Lily doll for about $20,000. Hmm. Getting these actually made is uh, a, an interesting challenge, and you tell us that some of the uh, complications came because much of the manufacturing actually occurred in Japan. And uh, due to the, 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 the language and cultural barriers of the time, uh, there were some interesting mistakes made and miscommunications in terms of very important uh, details, uh, including yes. some uh, important details of uh, Barbie's body.
1: Exactly. Uh, this was the beginning of you know companies going to Japan for the cheap workforce over there, um, and so Mattel had done this. They had started going to Japan to make to manufacture toys. This was a new, a new kind of plastic they were using, a new kind of molding process. Actually, uh, the Japanese didn't know how to do it any better than the Americans, and so uh, the engineers were struggling over there to figure out how to make this doll. And as you say, they were also struggling to understand what this doll was supposed to look like. The Japanese really didn't like this doll very much. They didn't like her looks, And they kept forming her with nipples on those breasts. And Mattel didn't quite want to go that far, and so finally, Jack Ryan, who was the engineer in charge of this over in uh, for Mattel over in Japan, one day he just got so frustrated he took out a file and just filed off those those nipples, <laughs> so that the Japanese would finally understand that Barbie was just supposed to have those smooth breasts that we know that she has today. So there were there were definitely some humorous missteps.
0: Right. And, of course, you outline other important details such as the rotational molding which gave Barbie that ability to uh, to move and twist and so on, which, uh, which we know very well. Of course, another big breakthrough besides the fact that Barbie is an adult is also the fact that she would have all of these different outfits, all of these different sorts of clothes. Uh, that's the kind of thing we just take for granted now it's just such a ubiquitous part of the t- of the doll business but apparently this was quite unprecedented at least here in america
1: yeah that was uh, another great innovation of ruth uh, from the minute she saw that lily doll she went in and she said okay i'd like these three dolls and then i'd like uh, some more outfits and they said oh no there's no other outfits you buy the doll you want another outfit you buy another doll and ruth said thought to herself well that's the stupidest thing in the world Let's just sell the doll, and we'll make all kinds of clothes. And children can just buy the other clothes, which, of course, was the genius of this. It was uh, the razor razor blade theory, as Elliot liked to say. Once you buy the razor, you got to get those razor blades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is a huge part, of course, of the Barbie market became the pieces of clothing that you could get. And even today, a doll is quite cheap. You can get a Barbie for as cheap as $5. But then the company knows you're
0: going to buy all those clothes and accessories. Hmm. So it uh, is successful fairly soon, but not immediately. Tell us uh, about at least the, the, the brief hesitancy on the part of stores uh, to, to purchase and stock this doll.
1: Yeah, well, in the beginning, it was quite a shock for Ruth. She unveiled the doll March 9th, 1959, at the toy fair. Had a big, beautiful display for Barbie, and all these male, dis- male buyers came in from the stores, including Sears, which was a very big buyer at the time. And they looked at this doll and turned up their noses and walked out, and she got very few orders and was absolutely devastated, calling Japan in a panic because she'd ordered so many, so much inventory, And the worst thing in the toy business is to have inventory that you can't get out of the warehouse. Well, she had also done something very innovative, which was to make a television commercial for this doll that really portrayed Barbie as a real person. And no doll had ever been advertised this way. And after Toy Fair, little girls started seeing this television ad. Not not too much happened for a couple of months, but then they got out of school. And once they were out of school for summer break, they started demanding this doll from their parents, and suddenly demand shot up, and it took three years for Mattel to actually catch up with demand after that.
0: It's probably important for us to understand, too, that that this doll was being marketed in a way that was quite unprecedented, that if I remember correctly... Commercials before then had decidedly been been pointed at parents, and these were commercials which were designed with little kids in mind.
1: Yes, we have Ruth Handler to thank for that. That actually started in 1955 when uh, Disney started that show, the Mickey Mouse Club. And for the first time, they offered the opportunity to toy companies to advertise for the entire year. In fact, you had to advertise for the entire year if you wanted to advertise on the Mickey Mouse Club. Now, toy companies had never done that. They only advertised right before Christmas, and actually they didn't go on TV very often. They mostly advertised in catalogs, and some people will remember those catalogs were aimed at parents, advising parents what toys to buy for their kids so that children were not really being considered as consumers. Ruth changed all that, and we might love her or hate her for it. But she bought into the Mickey Mouse Club that her whole worth of her company, half a million dollars, to buy those ads for a year. And, of course, it paid off magnificently.
0: When it but cha- it, did,
1: it did change the way toys were sold because yeah. now ads were aimed at kids and kids were what, the ones demanding what would be bought.
0: In fact, uh, someone who uh, worked for her uh, told a reporter, and you quote him this way, that retailers were irked because television advertising undercut their influence in the industry the ads forced them to buy what mattel advertised that is the stores it used to be store buyers dictated what toys would sell meaning the stores themselves but mattel reversed that and all of this became much more public driven which exactly. is exactly i mean and and again that's the kind of thing that we, we can't even imagine that world uh because it is so much the reverse and we are so entrenched in exactly the opposite.
1: Yeah, and uh, and also the idea that this really single-handedly Ruth Handler did make this change and there are many books that credit Mattel and, you know, her this this change that she made and she came up with she had the vision. And this is the, you know, the thing about founders of companies, people who build great companies having that big vision of how things can be changed to benefit their company.
0: So she goes on to uh, design variations on Barbie. And of course, uh, along comes Ken and Skipper and others and uh, all kinds of things. Eventually, Mattel expands into other ventures, including Hot Wheels, which are uh, incredibly popular and successful. Then things begin to go wrong. In, In whatever time remains to us, tell us about kind of the way in which all of this falls apart.
1: Yeah, well, at, in 1970, Ruth believes that uh, Mattel's a $300 million company and there's just no more room to grow. And so she has uh, the idea to start buying up other companies. Ringling Brothers Circus became a Mattel company. Uh, they bought a movie company, made the movie Sounder. But they were doing buying these companies with Mattel stock, which was very highly valued. And then comes a bad quarter. Profits are down. Can't let Wall Street know because that'll sink the stock price. And so the, Ruth cooks the books uh, and is caught in doing this, along with some of her other executives, and is convicted of SEC of fraud uh, by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Ends up with the longest community service sentence ever given to a white-collar criminal up to that time, but lucky she didn't go to jail. Hmm. I think the judge actually took pity on her because, during this terrible ordeal with the company, she also got breast cancer.
0: That gives us the opportunity. Let's talk then uh, just briefly about Nearly Me, which is uh, a very important undertaking for her.
1: Well, when terrible things happen to people, they can do all kinds of things and crawl into holes, but that wasn't Ruth's way. She went back to her core skills building a company, and she founded a new company, as you said, Nearly Me, making breast prosthetics, inserts, for uh, bras, for women who'd had mastectomies like herself. She built a woman-owned company, went around and fitted women personally, had a great experience for herself, and just uh, became a hero to women who had suffered from breast cancer and losing a breast because now they could look good again and have their dignity back. So it it was a great redemptive thing that she did for herself and for other women.
0: Much more in the pages of this fascinating book, Barbie and Ruth, published by HarperCollins. Robin Gerber, I thank you for joining me today on the morning show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.